in Numbers uh, chapter 13, if you want to flip there. I'm going to be reading a couple stories, first from Numbers and then from Nehemiah, and we're going to kind of compare and contrast those to get started tonight on what we want to talk about. So in Numbers 13, verse 1, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel, from each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a leader among them. So Moses sent them to the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the children of Israel. Let's jump down to verse 17. And then Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up this way into the south and go to the mountains and see what the land is like, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or like strongholds whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are forests there or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and they spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob, near the entrance of Hamath. And they went through the south and came to Hebron, Ahamon, Shishai, and Talmai. Really guessing on those pronunciations. The descendants of Anak were there. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zon in Egypt. Then they came to the valley of Eskol, and they cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes, and they carried it between two of them on a pole. Those must have been enormous grapes that they had to carry it like that. They also brought some of the pomegranates and figs. The place was called the Valley of Eskol because of the cluster which the men of Israel cut down there. And they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. Now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness at Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Then they told him and they said, we went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, all the ites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses, and he said, Let's go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against these people, for they are stronger than we. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word, and I thank you for the instruction that you have left us in it. Lord, I pray that uh, your words touch each person tonight, that we can all walk away with something that blesses our life the way you want it to be blessed, that we can grow in more abundance in the way that you've requested. In all this, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, on that story, I am going to assume, and the story actually kind of tells us this, that the men that Moses picked were good men. You know, I assume he picked men that, uh, he said men of courage. I assume he picked men that were leaders. He picked spiritual men. He picked brave men. He picked smart men. It says he picked one from each tribe. Uh, it even says one leader among them in verse 2. So Moses went out of his way to make sure that he got the right 12 men to go look at Canaan, right? Yes. So he sent these 12 men there. And these 12 men at this time, remember what they'd just gone through, because this is pretty early in their time in the wilderness. They, they really crossed the desert pretty quickly to get what they were going. 
But they've camped out at the river, and these men went over there, these men that just witnessed the plagues brought upon Egypt to get them free, these men that witnessed when they were thirsty, water sprung from a rock. I mean, they witnessed things that most of us really haven't got to see in our life, you know. When they were hungry, it rained down manna six nights a week for them. They whined about the manna, so he sent them quail. They, uh, unthinkable, unthinkable miracles that they have witnessed. They can see what God has done. God promised them escape from Egypt, and he gave it. He even wiped out the most powerful army in the world with water, <laughs> separated for dry land. Anyway, we, we all know that story. And these men who have witnessed everything God could do, what is the first thing they do when they have the opportunity? They say, well, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. Their negative mindset, they, it's like, you know, God can send the plagues. God can wipe out the army. God can part water. God can do all those things. But God can't help us take this. What type of negativity must that have been? Human negativity, and we've all witnessed such a thing. You know, this story has probably been used for 50 different topics by preachers to talk about. I know Pastor has used it. Uh, I was actually looking back on times I spoke before, and I actually used it before. But tonight, I'm using it for a very, very different reason. I want to talk about the mindset of people. I want to talk about what negativity and positivity can do. The negativity of these people, the negativity of 10 of those 12 people changed the course of history for 1 million Israelites. 1 million of them were stuck in the desert for the next 40 years because of the negativity of 10. The entire congregation followed them with what they did. My goal is that nobody that is in the sanctuary tonight spends one more day in the desert. And the proper mindset can take us where we want to do. If negativity can shut people down, is it fair to say that positivity can make things work? I mean, aren't there both sides of that? I want to look at another story. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you in, for the sake of time. But let's look at Nehemiah chapter 4. In Nehemiah chapter 4, what's going on here? Nehemiah, of course, was sent back to Israel. The king allowed him, where he was captive, to go back to Israel, to go back to Jerusalem. He said, I need to go back to Judah because the walls of my city have been torn down. It's in disarray. He just felt the pull of the Lord that he had to go back there and work on that. So when Nehemiah goes back, he's an intelligent guy. He walks around the city. He spends a couple days making plans. And anybody that would have looked at that said, you can't rebuild these city walls. It will take years. I mean, this is too long of a time period. It's too big of a job. We all know how that went, right? 52 days. In 52 days, the people had rebuilt the wall. Nehemiah 4.6 tells us how. It says, so we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. They decided they were going to do it, and they did it. It's almost that simple. They decided they were going to do it, and they did it. Now, you look at these two stories. Do you think that the people in Nehemiah, do you think the Israelites had God on their side? This is audience participation tonight. Do you think the people had God on their side? 
Did they have the spirit of God in them? Did they have God's favor in building the wall? Yes. I love that participation. Now, let's contrast that with the other story. Do you think the Israelites that God took out of bondage gave manna, gave quail, gave water, wiped out an army chasing them, do you think they had God on their side? Yes. Do you think they had the Spirit of God with them? Yes. Do you think they had God's favor? Yes. So what's the difference? It was the human mind that wrecked these two things. The humans we're talking about in one story said, with God, we're going to do this. And the humans in the other story, despite the God, despite the first chapter of that, God said, I am giving you this land. Just go look at it first. I'm giving it to you. Despite that, humans still wrecked his plan with a negative mindset. So I've titled this message tonight, Make It a Great Day. It's really a phrase I use a lot in my own life. I used to do a little radio thing every day on KNIA, and I always wrapped it up with, Make It a Great Day, Knoxville. I believe that with all my heart that you can make it a great day. It's not just have a great day. It's like, no, just make sure you have one. Create it. Make it for yourself. And I think we can do that in our life. I think we can choose to look, is the glass half full, the glass half empty, I think we can choose to walk around without the woe is me attitude. Woe is me. If we go fight them, we're going to lose. We can wipe that from our existence and it changes our entire outlook on life and it changes our health. It changes everything that comes at us in life. All right? We all know these types of people today, right? Do you know people that are positive? People that are negative? You know, these people that whenever you encounter them, they're in a good mood. And then there's the people that if they won Powerball, they'd complain about the taxes they're paying. You know, they, they just always find something to wreck the attitude of what they're doing. Who would you rather be with, positive or negative? Okay, so let's be positive. That's the end of the message. I'm going to keep talking. There's more. We're going to talk more about that. So, you know, there's, there's all kinds of studies and things that have been done. Positive thoughts, what it does for us, a happy thought. Uh, it leads to less sickness. It leads to better health. It leads to better jobs. It leads to higher incomes, people that have this mindset. It leads to longer lives. Mayo Clinic did a study, and they could prove that the health of the heart was better in happy people. They didn't say that happy people have healthier hearts, or they didn't say that people with healthy hearts are happy. They said happy people end up with healthier hearts because of the way they live their life. So it seems like something we would all want to have. Here is one more benefit of that, of a positive mindset, of of a happy temperament. We as Christians are called to spread the gospel to others, right? We're called to attract others to his life. Well, what do you think attracts people better? People that are happy, people that are happy, successful, a good temperament, or people that trudge through life, like, what's that donkey's name in Pooh? Eeyore. Eeyore, yeah. You know, who do you think's more attractive? Who do you think you're going to draw people with? Simple answer. Uh, just reading a thing on this is, as I decide what I'm going to talk to, and you get this message, you start working on it, then you start really Googling articles or different things, just trying to learn more. And a guy wrote a book called The Psychology of the Body. 
doctor I've never heard of. But he did a test about what the mind can do, and it was a dynonometer, which I'd never heard of, but it measures how hard you can squeeze something. So he took 100 people, and they averaged 101 pounds of squeezing pressure with their hands. Seems like a lot to me, but that was their average. Then this, he's a psychiatrist. He hypnotized them and explained to them how weak they were. And then they averaged 29 pounds. It fell 70%. And then he, whatever you, unhypnotized, rehypnotized, and told them how strong they were, and they averaged 142 pounds. It's the power of the mind. These are the same humans, the same people, the same grip, the same forearms, the same strength. You know, nothing changed with their body. It's what their mind knew their body could do. Think about all the ways that could impact our life if we're positive in every way we can be, if we believe we're strong. All right. Now, before I get deeper into this, I want to distinguish something that's, uh, Pastor did a series. I'm pretty sure he did a series once on joy. Is that correct? I'm not talking about joy tonight. I just want to distinguish that. There is a difference. You know, joy is this eternal spring that's given to us when we are saved. We should all have joy within us. I would argue if you are saved, you have joy, even if you decide to tamper it down or something. It's there. It's deep. It's eternal. It's within you. Tonight's probably a little more flippant than that. I'm actually talking about your mood. What's your day-to-day mood? What's your day-to-day temperament? How do you treat people? So I just want to distinguish that. Joy is for another day. In fact, it's been done. Uh, it, it is selfless, it's eternal, it's rooted within you. The mood that you're in, your happiness, your sadness, or whatever you're feeling at that time is more temporal, but I'm going to talk tonight about how you can make it more permanent and make it a habit that you are always in a good mood. Fair enough? Just want to distinguish that. So, All right. On that tablet. I'm going to go back to joy for just a second. I lied about not going deeper into it because I also think they're linked also. You know, I think there is a link between them. I think it is possible for someone who's unsaved or someone who truly doesn't have joy, I think it's possible for them to buy, to find happiness. You know, they find it in temporary flesh things. They, they find it in making money or they find it in maybe things they shouldn't be doing. You know, you can be an atheist and have happiness. But what bothers me most, and, I, and I, I think I've come across enough people in my life that I've come into some of these. I know people that are saved that should have joy and do have joy, and they're not happy. And that's who I'm addressing tonight. I hope it's nobody in this room. If it is, I hope you feel better afterwards. Then I'll know how things went. So, All right. If we're going to do this as we do anything, I just wanted to touch on developing habits. If we're going to do something that makes us happy, if we're going to make a change that ever gets spoken to us in this sanctuary, you sort of have to develop a habit to do it if it doesn't come natural to you. Our flesh doesn't make everything natural. Our flesh doesn't make some of the things that we want out of our life a natural thing to do. So therefore, you have to do a little bit of work. You have to develop it. You have to go with it. 1 Corinthians 15.58, it says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain of the Lord. 
So if we want to commit to a lifestyle of positive thinking and happiness, to the idea that we can always be in a good mood, it requires steadfast commitment. Steadfast commitment abounding in the work of the Lord. It requires us to not move away from that. We have to develop habits. We have to, uh, we have to make a decision daily as you're establishing that, that this is what you're going to live like. If that means you have to tape a message to the mirror in the morning, then do that. If it means that there is a scripture that always makes you happy when you read it, well, then read it the moment you wake up. You know, develop systems that you know you can rely on and you can always back up to yourself so that when trials come or when different things come, whatever it is that makes you happy, figure that out, work on it, develop the habit, and remain steadfast in the Lord as you do that. All right. It says that knowing your labor is not in vain in that scripture. Knowing that what you're doing is correct, knowing that the Lord's pleased with this, knowing that you're getting closer to the Lord as you do it. You know, this confidence that you can develop as you develop these habits. <laughs> confidence, I think, of uh, confident people. Muhammad Ali was a confident person, you know. Walked around saying, okay, he was arrogant, frankly, but there is a certain cleverness to how he lived. You know, he always says, I am the greatest, I am the greatest. And I was watching something on him once, and somebody in his camp, his entourage, kind of got sick of him saying that or something. And they said, oh, yeah, what about the game of golf? And he said, I'm the greatest at that, too. I just haven't tried playing yet. And I was like, now there's a confident guy, you know, and had a pretty successful life because of it, I guess, in the physical world, so... You know, in athletics, which is I use for examples often, you know, a good coach, part of their job, it's not just to train you or teach you a play. So often it's to develop confidence in you, develop your confidence so that you know what you can do. You know, you get a good coach. I, I had one, I had a track coach. I'll be up front as my dad, so I'm kind of biased. I can't explain it. I don't know what he did. I don't know what he said. It wasn't just me being his son. We were all this way. We assumed we could beat everybody all the time. I mean, it, send the biggest school in the state, we'll beat them too. I mean, send a small college, we'll figure out how to beat them. It was just a mentality that he gave us. And it worked. Uh, he had success doing that. We've, I've had other people talk about it. It's like, I don't know what he did to us, but we just assumed we could run through a brick wall. Like, there was just simply no way we could lose. He, it wasn't true, but he had convinced us we worked harder than everybody. We were tougher than everybody. We did things they didn't. And that mind game he played with us, you just simply went out and won. And I think we can do that to our life. I really think we can take that approach to our mood and happiness. I think we can develop habits and confidence that I say, you simply cannot steal my happiness. I won't have it. <laughs> there is nothing you can do that's going to take away me and my happiness and my optimism and my outlook on life. And when we have that approach in anything we learn in here, we will go far as Christians and our faith will grow. I'm a pretty happy, optimistic person, actually. Uh, and I say that. When you're working on a message or when I am, I believe it's the enemy sometimes starts talking to you. I don't know if that happens to someone like Pastor that does it more. 
but I start to have doubts about things I'm saying. And in this case, I'll tell you some background on this one. I started having these doubts. I said, well, who are you to talk about this? Normally, when I have an opportunity to talk to you, I tell you, I am awful at this part of life, so I'm preaching to myself, and I'm hoping that someone else can follow along, and it helps them too. This one I'm talking, and I say, well, who are you to talk about being happy when I have been so blessed in my life? The enemy was saying, well, that's easy for you to say, Joe. I mean, you have a beautiful wife and children and a nice house and a good job, and you've never dealt with health issues. You've been blessed. Of course you're happy. That was Those were the thoughts that came. And I had to combat those a little bit, and I guess I kind of fought back, and I said, yeah, but God's word is truth. <laughs> and that's where this message, we're going to get to more truth on this. And I said, and this is true for everybody. No matter your circumstances, no matter what your life is like, no matter what your childhood is like, no matter what things you have been dealt, you too can choose happiness. All right. All that talk just to start digging into this. All right, I'm going to give you a few steps, okay? Step number one, you have to block negativity. You have to block negativity. You are not going to eliminate negative things in this world. Did anybody in here have a job? Have you ever been around negative people? You don't, don't quit your job because of that. You know what I'm saying? Anybody have negative people in their family? Well, don't quit your family over that. My point being, I'm not telling you to avoid negativity. I'm really not. I'm saying you have to block it and defect it. You have to keep it away from yourself. Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 31 and 32, it says, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So, negativity is going to come our way. His words telling that. But you don't have to partake in it. It's really hard in today's world where Communication is so different. You know, you read something on Facebook and you get wound up and you want to respond. Just a tip. Don't ever, ever respond. (laughs) Don't add to the comments and how can we help Knoxville? It's an awful sight. It's the most unhelpful thing ever invented. Negativity is going to be there. But, you know, the old adage like your mom told you, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Like, well, that's very true. Don't let it rob you. You have to put it away. You can't avoid it. You can't avoid toxic people. You can't avoid negative people. I'm sure there's times you have to get people out of your life. But you are going to continue to encounter negative people in your life. You're going to continue to encounter negative situations in your life. Deflect it. Fight it. It's the first step. Because if you fill yourself with negativity, if you fill yourself with vile and you want to respond to people, we've already lost this battle. Okay? Keep it away from yourself. The second tip, you have to live in the present and the future. You have to live in the present and the future. That is optimism. Notice I didn't say past. Live in the now and live in the what is coming. In Romans chapter 15, verse 13, Paul writes, Now may the God of hope you with all joy and peace and believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit 
the God of hope. I love that phrase, the God of hope. The dictionary defines hope as two different things. Top two definitions were a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. So he is the God of expectation and desire that certain things are going to happen. What a terrific definition of God. And he's also, the second definition is a feeling of trust. He is the God of trust. How can we not be optimistic with his promises, what he has told us, and with the proof of the last thousands of years what we've seen him do, and more recently what he's done for all of us? You know, I'm a, on this one, I'm a real, I personally am, I call myself a pretty rational thinker, a very methodical thinker. Uh, I'm sometimes very, very slow to make answer things. Maybe I'm just not very smart, but I like to roll it around in my head. I like to look at all sides of things. It drives Shauna and my kids insane when they ask me a question, and it takes me two days to answer. I said I'm a slow thinker. I'm methodical. I'm extremely rational at thinking. But all that said, I am an absolute eternal optimist. I just, I can't think of situations where I'm not optimistic. I assume that in my business it'll be bigger next year than this year. I just always think that way. If a loved one is sick, they'll get better. They'll get healed. That's always my thought. I have projects to do, they'll get done. I always look at that, that next year will be better than this year. Five years from now will be even better than that. It's just my nature. I believe the Steelers will be in the Super Bowl. Hey, to be fair, I have been right eight times. How many of your teams done? So, this will be number nine. Like I said, I'm an optimist. I love to think ahead like that. And I think that's important in our mindset. I think that scripture shows us that that's what God wants. And we know people like this too, right? We know people that they're just always thinking that things are going to work out. And those people, more often than not, it does work out because their mindset made it work out. Now, there's a story of two brothers and their young kids. One of them is an eternal optimist. One's an eternal pessimist. And their parents, they were so far optimism and pessimism that it almost concerned their parents. So they said, you know, we're going to do something at Christmas. So for one of the boys, they bought a brand-new shiny bicycle and they gave it to the pessimist. So he sees that under the tree, and the first thing he says is, oh, man, I'll probably break my leg when I ride that thing. You, know, you just can't please people like that. Well, the eternal optimist opened his present, and it was a box of manure. He smiled and said, you guys can't fool me. With this much manure, there's got to be a pony out in the driveway. <laughs> and he ran outside. You know, I want to hang out with that guy. I want that mentality at everything in life. I want to figure out. Because as it says in there, he is the God of hope. He is the God that can fill us with joy. He is the God that can fill us with peace. And we will be abound in hope when we follow him. So if we wake up every morning, or if we, if we purpose, if we set a new habit, put the stickies on the mirror, that I'm going to be optimistic. Liv's going to go and get straight A's this year. 
That's her mindset. And she'll do a lot better with that than to go in with fear. We should choose hope. We should choose optimism. And that is what's going to lead to happiness. Now, if you have optimism, it's going to really help with this third step that I want to talk about. All right? The third step to happiness. You have got to remove stresses from your life. I'm going to be very careful with language here. I did not say remove stressors. You know, it's back to that first thing. If a person causes you stress, I'm not saying remove them. That's not the point. You have to remove stress from your life. Back to the language, I also did not say deal with the stress. I said remove stress from your life. All right? We're going to talk about how to do that. First Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13, he says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind... Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Gird up the loins of your mind. Does anybody know what that means? What does it mean to gird something up? I don't use that terminology every day. So I had to look it up a little bit. And from the original Greek, the way that translation works, they were speaking about, at that time, everybody wore long robes and tunics. And if you wanted to do something physical or you wanted to do something, say, athletic, they would pull their tunic up, wrap it into their belt, and they were girding up their loins. Okay? Now they have a short skirt instead of a long skirt. This says, gird up your minds. We have, to, we have to get the excess stuff that's in the way from us succeeding out of our heads. The things that are holding us back in our heads, we have to remove that. We have to tuck it up under our ball cap or something so that we can think straight and we can get through life. We have to clean it up is what we have to do. We have to clean things up. I'm talking about stresses Fears, worry, the things that don't belong in our head. And as you get too many of those things in your head, there's a physical reaction, and that's where anxiety is. I'm not a psychologist or psychiatrist. I'm not going not to get into the depths of anxiety. Anxiety is real. Okay? Anxiety is the byproduct of not dealing or not eliminating the stresses and fears that were in your life. Eliminating, not dealing with. All right, listen to me for a second. If I put you to sleep... Wake up just for this next part. We, human beings, were not designed to deal with stress. It's not in us. It was not designed that way. Who designed us? God, audience participation again. Thank you. When he designed the first man, and then he took part of him and made a woman, there were just the two people. Where did they live? With whom? Yes, that's what we were designed for. Human beings, when he made us in his own image, he designed us for that. I argue we are not capable of dealing with stress. It's not in us. So the only solution is to get rid of stress so that it's not even there. You know, we messed up the whole Garden of Eden thing. 
So now we have to deal with these fleshy problems. That's why we have to talk about it. We weren't designed for it. It's not in us. We're not capable of dealing with stress. Again, I'm not talking about removing people. I'm not talking about quitting your job. I'm talking about understanding what we can and can't fix, understanding what we can and can't deal with, doing our part to solve whatever problems or stresses there are, and then we hand the rest of it off to someone. Who's that someone? You guys are great tonight. You're batting a thousand. We have to get rid of that because we can't deal with it. We all know people that we say, man, they handle stress really well. And I, I, it's a compliment. I get what they're saying, but I, I argue you're saying it wrong. He doesn't handle stress well. He doesn't have stress. He doesn't carry it. He doesn't carry what he has no control over. Here's an example. If, I, if one of our kids is sick, nobody likes having sick kids. I mean, who's had a sick kid? It's awful. You feel bad. You want to fix it. Do what you can. What can I do? It's like, well, I don't know. We, we can use medicine we have. We're going to pray over them. We can see a doctor if necessary. After that, what can I do? So I can't carry that with me to the point that I'm stressed, that I have a headache, that I get sick, that it, and then when 15 things like that have built up in my head, it's turned into a physical ailment called anxiety because you've let too many things inside of you. You have to put it on. The Lord told us that his yoke is light, ours is heavy, man. He said, hand it to me. He says, I got this. We have to eliminate stress from our lives and able to be happy. The people that you know, I say I use that example, we all know people that, oh, they handle stress great. Do any of them seem unhappy to you? <laughs> they got it figured out. They've done something great. Maybe it came natural to them. I don't know. But like all these things, I say we can teach ourselves this. We can use God's word and scriptures and trust him that he is the God that can handle all of this for you. Now, I was reading another one of these articles about just this whole topic of stress, and it was a kind of like the newsletters we have out front. Uh, Christians wrote letters to some pastor, and she asked a question. It was a woman, and she said, because I suffer from anxiety, does that mean I'm a bad Christian? And I didn't read the pastor's answer. I answered it myself. It's like, no, it means you're human. You should handle things a little differently. But again, you weren't designed to deal with that. You're not capable of dealing with it. The only way to deal with it is to unload it on someone else. Deal with what you can. This topic on stress and anxiety, anxiety, which I said I'm not getting into, but I was startled when I read that they've, they estimate 40 million Americans suffer from anxiety, like 12% of our population. And this is anxiety, like this is a legit diagnosis, you know, not even a self-diagnosis. This is just 40 million Americans deal with this issue. So it's very prevalent. So you can read a lot about it. You can study a lot about it. You can get stats on it and all that stuff. But uh, so many articles, they start out and they say, well, in today's age, you know, because of our fast-paced environment, because of social media, because of our jobs, because of this, because of, because of, because of, because of. This is really a side note. I take exception to that. 
When was the Bible written? Between 2,000 and 3,500 years ago, depending on the books we're reading. There are hundreds of references to it in the Bible. My point being, this is not a new problem, people. We have new reasons for it. Since the beginning of time, since we messed up Eden, God has been giving instruction on how to deal with this because we're not capable of dealing with it. Because I'm not capable of dealing with it, my only solution is get rid of it. Perfect song tonight, Shar. The battle belongs to him. Good example for how to do that. It's not ours to fight. So if that's anyone in here tonight, if you struggle with stress, I pray that this is the last night you do that. Something clicks in your head that says, I'm not doing it anymore. I can't do it anymore. I'm going to hand it off to the Savior that was sent. God's a sharp guy. He knew we couldn't deal with it, so he fixed it. He sent the help. All right. We're about out of time. I'm ready to close anyway. If praise and worship wants to come back up, I'll, I'll be brief on this last little section. Sorry, I got excited and talked too much there, but we'll wrap it up. The final step on anything we do, whether it be on happiness or anything we're taught in, is it's time to take action on things. It's time to take action. 2 Timothy 1.7 said, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. You know, we have some power to deal with these things. Because he's given us a sound mind, because he's given us his spirit, right? So it's time to take action. You know, follow these steps. What can you do to eliminate the negativity? What can you do to deflect negativity tomorrow? If you suffer from any of those, if you're not a happy person, frankly, I think we're a pretty happy group. Maybe I'm preaching to the choir here. But if you struggle with happiness in any way, let's start that on Thursday, all right? Let's fix it tomorrow. Purpose that whatever you do tomorrow, you will not get caught up in negativity. You absolutely won't get caught up in negativity. Purpose in yourself that your optimism is going to be on fire tomorrow. You know what? If nothing else, look out a day. Friday is going to be better than Thursday. It usually is, by the way. You know? So have an optimistic outlook on life tomorrow, starting tomorrow. And finally, stop dealing with the stresses that are wrecking whatever happiness you might have. Don't deal with them. Wipe them out. Get rid of them. Hand them off to the Savior that came here for that reason. It's hard for all of us because we like to control things. It's hard, that thing, that's hard for me. I, like, I really like being in control, I think. It's not my problem. There are lots of things that aren't my problem. I'm involved with them. But I can't fix it. I can pray. I can hand it off to him. And I can finally get out of the desert and cross the river. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope that it encouraged or inspired you to God's best. If you have any questions about today's message, need prayer, or would like to learn more about Living Word Fellowship, please call 641 828-7119 or visit us at lwfknoxville.com.